Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists, we platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear political education for the masses, grounded in history, theory, and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. Welcome to the Surviving Society Spotlight series. My name is Tiago Machado Costa. I'm a BSG researcher at the University of Nottingham. I'm so excited to bring you today discussions around sexuality, racism, and how some scholars have been engaging with these ideas and kind of what can be gained from thinking about the very deep and kind of intrinsic connections between sexuality and racism. My own research focuses on sexual racism and racialized desires. Particularly, I focus on gay bisexual men's sexual cultures and geographies of sexuality in the UK. So the, the cultures and communities and spaces that gay and bisexual men use to find and, and meet and interact with sexual partners. I'm joined by two people who've been writing about these topics and they've kind of influenced my own thinking on these topics so much. And yeah, just as if you wanna if you wanna start introducing yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Tiago. Um Mr. Gregorio Smith here. I am an assistant professor in ethnic studies at Lawrence University in Wisconsin in the United States. And I too uh, explore the ideas of, of the intersections of race and sexuality and how they impact different variables and diff- different arrangements in essence, very much into erotic uh, logics and erotic understandings of things. Uh, so very much uh, united in the same sort of interest. And again, just very thankful to, uh, to be a part of this conversation. I'm Siwin Chahan. I'm a professor of sociology at Middlebury College. Uh, my work looks at the way that um, race and racism play out in the gay communities. And particularly my uh, current project looks at uh, the centrality of whiteness as and among sort of the way that whiteness gets, I suppose, played out within these sort of queer spaces. It's interesting to, I guess, take a, a personal t- perspective on these issues and, and maybe get us each to think about what it means for us to kind of research the things that we do and why we started looking into these areas. I know that for me, um, I moved to the UK in 2016 for university and for my further education. As, a, as an 18 year old queer person, I think the, one of the first things that I did was open Grindr and, and kind of had a look at, uh, you know, as you do, as you do, you, you, you look around, see what's out there. And, you know, within a few hours of being in the country, uh, I was getting messages you know, relatively explicit messages of people being like, I've heard Portuguese people in their big asses, or, you know, uh, what I was like in bed, things around how hairy I was. Essentially kept happening for as long as I had on my profile that I was from Portugal. I think when I when I took that out, some of those things stopped to a certain degree, and it made me realize how, essentially for those few months, I'd experienced the tip of a very large iceberg that, um, had to give in a lot more attention that, than it had before, and especially uh, in academic circles, but, it, you know, beyond that, and kind of that conversation wasn't as prominent in 
in popular queer culture as maybe I thought it should be. What about you guys? What what was your entry, your initial interests into these kinds of things? Well, first, I love that you started this conversation talking about Grindr. <laughs> I think that's a really good segue into we're going to be talking about a whole lot of sex for people out there. Um, no, but very similar. I um, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas in the United States, which is a border town with um, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. So basically I lived in a space that was predominantly Hispanic and Latino uh, uh, folks and um, a very small black population. My dad's from the States, my mother is from Mexico. So I had a very, very unique kind of experience. And I think um, my, my first kind of uh, experiences with sexual racism were definitely when I started dating at this time, it was Craigslist. I was looking on Craigslist and seeing kind of like the sort of uh, engagements there and the, you know, no fast enough femmes uh, sort of language, the no blacks in that area or no dark skin was uh, very, very prominent. But also, you know, on gay.com, which was the kind of website at the time, you would have those sorts of interactions, like if you hit up profiles and stuff. So I think it was like a moment of like shock and awareness kind of mostly because I, you know, I felt like we were getting peddled this narrative that we were beyond race for so long. Um, you know, this is the early 2000s and I was definitely growing up thinking, hey, race doesn't matter. You're just seeing people for individuals, the whole MLK talk. And then to start dating and to come out as a gay man and think that I'm going to have this sort of connection with folks. And instead I was getting lots of rejection was such a moment of like, awakening it was like oh this isn't what you know the the narrative they they peddled that race doesn't matter no that's not true in fact it all that i keep experiencing is how much it matters and it didn't matter if i was in shape it didn't matter if i was you know didn't, all the young all these different factors i was still getting oftentimes rejected for my race or um, fetishized for my race and so and that was like such an interesting experience for me especially as an afro-latino who who visually appears black, it felt like such rejection from so many different communities. And so I think that definitely inspired my intellectual curiosity in what I wanted to do. I ended up going to the University of Texas El Paso, my hometown, and it was in, uh, kind of an undergrad. I started you know, taking a social psych class and exploring this topic as my final paper. And the professor at the time, um, she got me in contact with one of Dr. Han's papers. <laughs> it was uh, no fats, no fems, um, no Asians. And it was the first time I started to see kind of what I was experiencing in academic language that was making sense of my life. And, and so I think that was kind of the moment that I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know you could actually research and explore a topic like this. And then two, that there, that these feelings that I had, that there was some racism um, behind this, that there was something legitimate. Because everybody at the time was just like, oh, that's just, just preferences. So even though I was feeling so marginalized and feeling so like rejected and feeling like, hey, what's going on? This is, this is not the world I thought we lived in. It was so defended so much. And so this was kind of the first time that I started to see oh, wait a minute, there's a long history of racism happening here. There's a long history of rejection. There's a long history of people not wanting to cruise our types. 
And I think that's when I began my uh, academic journey on the topic. I think for me, uh, in many ways, I was fortunate that I grew up in a time before dating apps and online dating and all this other stuff because people generally are not as blatantly racist when you're standing in front of them, right? I mean, this anonymity of the internet and these dating apps give people serious amounts of leeway into, into sort of voicing their racism in a lot of ways. And so growing up, especially because growing up in San Francisco, where close to half the city is already Asian, uh, and being insulated in a lot of ways, I think, um, I did not, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't like so naive that I didn't realize that we lived in a racist society, right? I mean, I knew that in high school and whatnot, but it's very hard to see when you're not constantly reminded of it on a daily basis until I actually moved to Seattle and I started a research project. And the whole project was aimed at looking at the way that uh, the factors that led to unsafe sex among gay Asian men. You know, it wasn't a topic that I was particularly interested in, but I was in grad school, needed a job, and, and this was a, a project that had very flexible hours. And so I thought, you know, I'll just do this and see what happens. Um, again, part of it, I think, was because I, I never saw, at least at that time, um, if you were an, an Asian sociologist, it meant that you were going to study some bizarre, you know, immigrant <laughs> incorporation or assimilation, and and it was very narrow in terms of what what you can do, right? Um, and like I see this, when I was in grad school, I mean, I knew people were studying sexuality, but that was a very white thing, right? It was sort of it was what sort of white kids did, right? <laughs> um, and I, I kind of thought as a race scholar, I I couldn't really sort of play in that arena very much. So I took this job and even back then, you know, this was now 20 years ago, uh, we didn't know a whole lot about why Asian men engage in unsafe sex. But there were a lot of theories and the theories looking back on it now were pretty racist themselves, right? They were immigrants, they didn't speak English, they, they were in the closet, they had conservative values or whatever the case might be. And so we did this study and part of the study was also doing an intervention to lower HIV risk behaviors that were that was very popular at the time and was very successful. But you know, like most things, these interventions were, were, were tested on gay white men. And so this was a six city study where uh, the, the site where I was employed at was looking at gay Asian men, but there were sites that looked at gay Latino men and gay black men. I think uh, Milwaukee was the site for black men and I think, um, I can't forget, I forget which one was the site for Latino men. And so each of these sites, you know, were trying to uncover why gay men of color were engaging in unsafe sex. And they were also simultaneously running this intervention to see if we can lower it over the six year period. Um, in a nutshell, the intervention that was very popular with white men didn't work with any of the men of color. And so we found two things. It's, it's why did this intervention not work? Also, uh, in our site, we found that none of the stereotypical explanations for why gay Asian men engage in high rates of unsafe sex were true. In the sense that Asian men who are out of the closet, Asian men who are born here, Asian men who are um, more active in the gay community, were actually more likely to engage in unsafe sex than Asian men who are closeted, 
Asian men who are immigrants, Asian men who weren't in the gay community very much. And so all the explanations that, that work for white guys didn't work for Asian men. It didn't work for black men or Latino men either. And so when the project ended, it was sort of, you know, I was having this crisis of why did this not, why did the intervention not work? And what are the reasons why Asian guys engage in unsafe sex? And so I abandoned my dissertation project, which wasn't going anywhere. And it was really boring to begin with anyway, right? It was at, I was looking at why Asian kids do better in predominantly white high schools than predominantly high, black high schools, right? Um, and so I was trying to make the argument that there's nothing special about being Asian. There's something about uh, the schools and the racial composition of the schools and whatnot, right? That if Asian kids really, if this was really about Asian culture, then Asian kids should be doing well everywhere. Um, and I was finding initial findings were that Asian kids were actually uh, doing better at the predominantly white schools than, than, than the predominantly black schools, but it was still so boring to me. <laughs> it's a typical topic for an Asian sociology PhD student to be studying. And I thought, this is so uninteresting. And I couldn't see myself building a career out of that. Like, uh, because it wasn't just about the dissertation. My, you know, my advisor says, you know, do you want to do this for the rest of your life? And I just didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I had this question now that was very interesting to me. Uh, and I remember during the research process, how much sort of little microaggressive racist behavior I encountered um, being sort of in the, in the predominantly queer white spaces and of course, I've been in predominantly queer white spaces before growing up, but in San Francisco, I went there into those spaces with largely queer Asian men, right? And we were, San Francisco has a sort of reputation for being a place where um, there are a lot of sticky rice. Uh, it's Asian guys who just like other Asian guys, right? And, and so that's the environment I grew up in, where most of my queer friends were Asian. We hung out with each other. We dated each other. We, you know, we, we didn't see white guys as sort of a, a thing, right? Um, a thing. <laughs> I love that. I was growing up in that environment, I found out that, that, you know, and so when I got to Seattle, that's when I started to, to see that, that uh, there were, I, I, I had such a hard time. I made queer Asian friends, but I saw that they all were like going after white guys, right? And so I didn't quite understand that either. It's not like I was so naive that I didn't know they're interracial gay couples, but I didn't think of them any differently than I saw interracial straight couples. I just, just, when I was in high school, I thought, this is just the way these people are, right? Just, again, this like, narrative of personal preference, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't see how, even in San Francisco, that has a reputation for being a place where there are a lot of sticky rice, that the majority of Asian guys are still dating white guys, right? Um, and that I did not realize that my group of friends that I haphazardly sort of stumbled into um, were, were, were sort of the, a minority of, of people, even among gay Asian guys, right? Because you don't really, you know, when you're 18 to 22, you don't venture that far out of your own social group, right? You, you right. hang out with the same people, you see the same people, and, and you believe that everyone thinks the way you do, right? So it, it, it never dawned on me. And of course, I've had experiences in college where I've hit on other Asian guys at bars and completely rejected, but I didn't think that this was because 
these guys didn't like the other Asian guys. I thought these guys just didn't like me, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because this this sort of pattern I, I never knew existed because the people I was hanging out with all liked other Asian guys. Um, and so it wasn't this big thing. Um, and then I started remembering during the research in Seattle, there were all these instances of microaggressive racist behaviors. And I thought, there's something happening here, right? That that there's something really racist about this space. And I started to, I think as an adult, started to see that Asian guys tend to sort of cluster in specific areas of the club. And they're not really sort of in the center of it, right? Because it was very hard because in San Francisco, uh, I went to gay bars with my Asian friends um, or I went to sort of straight Asian bars, right? With my friends. Um, and so, so in San Francisco, it's very easy to, to be Asian and not see this as, as a big thing. I started to examine how racism impacts unsafe sexual behaviors. And from there, I kind of thought, if it impacts unsafe sexual behaviors, it probably impacts all kinds of sexual behaviors, right? And I became really curious about this and thought about, well, how does then that impact the way that, they, that Asian guys see themselves as well as they see potential partners? And then how do they then engage with these potential partners? And uh, it was very eye-opening for me in a lot of ways to meet Asian guys who um, who did not grow up in predominantly Asian spaces. I mean, of course, I had met them in college as well, right? Not gay Asian guys, but I met straight Asian guys who grew up in predominantly white spaces who, 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 who would say things like, well, I never thought I was attractive growing up. Um, I never thought that, you know, I thought that I was like different from everybody else. Uh, but having grown up in San Francisco, you know, when I think that like 80% of my high school was Asian. And so it's very hard to have that that kind of like awareness, I think, of feeling like the only Asian person in my school is my brother or something, and everybody else is white. And, and so um, it was a new experience for me. And I, that's when I started to sort of delve deeper into this. And then, of course, when I started delving deeper into it, I started to actually think about my younger experiences. And I thought, oh, wait, I did not see this when I was at that age. But if I reflect back on it, then yeah, it happened to me quite often. I just didn't see it. I didn't have a language for it. And I was told when I was, you know, back in, you know, 2000, that I probably wouldn't get a job. And, and I probably wouldn't, <laughs> I, I probably couldn't build a career on this. And so I, but I thought, you know, um, it's my life. I'm, I'm if, if, I, if it doesn't work out, I'll just do something else. Um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do this. So, so you know, to my surprise, I, I built a career on this. <laughs> so much truth to what you're saying, too, because I guess, like, even this episode is a fine example of, you know, this is seen on the margins of soci sociology, even though I think so much of what we do is so reflective of society at large yeah. and, um, and so sexy like it's like a topic that i think students are oftentimes engaged with and other scholars are interested in i mean it's almost like queer theory deliberately left out race because it doesn't if you if you sort of interject race into queer studies then it disrupts this sort of narrative of the universalizing queer experience right right um, and asian american studies was so concerned with this like migrations of straight people 
and how this relationship between like the first generation and second generation, which which sort of, they don't explicitly say then this is about straight people, but obviously if you can talk about parents and children, you're, you're talking about straight people, right? But they don't see it that way, right? And so, <laughs> so you know, um, even in, in, in Asian American studies, I, I don't know that I had a space, even though of course, uh, people were writing about this, right? Uh, there are people uh, who, who who really wrote about queer Asian experiences long before I did. Um, I think that I just got lucky with timing, right? So I, I think academia is, is a lot about timing, where um, where you build upon things that were long written about. I mean, there are, there are stuff that was written in academia about racism in the gay community that take back to like the early '80s, mm-hmm. um, and nobody paid attention, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think that, that my work is original or unique in any way. I think that I threw my work out there when the, the academic community was ready to hear it, right? And there That's were all these other people doing this work when nobody in academia really cared, right? And so this was always, and to a large extent, it's still considered very niche. Yeah. You'll find a lot of people who, a lot of the people that I find, even in conferences and, and things like that, that are interested in these kinds of topics, I always talk to them and when you dig into it, they're working on these topics and that's kind of like the second project or third or fourth project is the, the side thing that they do when they have time uh, or, or the thing they do because they're interested but not because it actually, uh, it's not their main area of research. And, and you know, when when that happens, especially in in countries and in, in kind of subfields and in subjects where there isn't necessarily as much research funding going around, you do end up not having those contributions being heard. And I think if, if you look at uh, the vast majority of people researching interconnections between race and sexuality, a lot of that research is going to be coming from the, the kind of HIV prevention, sexual health, areas because there is you know there is money in that uh and and there are you know there are whole research centers and several of them a lot of them you know certain towns have multiple of kind of research centers dedicated to hiv where you can a lot more easily you know approach sexual racism as a sexual health issue but then also what does that mean for thinking about pleasure and thinking about how certain people are the night of pleasure and the night of that kind of intimacy of sex and eroticism what happens when you think of that from a health perspective you know yeah um, yeah and it's interesting right because i think that we are now getting back to that um, sociology has largely ignored desire and pleasure right um because there's no there's no language for that in sociology largely part of it is because sociology is interested in, in the group group stuff, right? Uh, where desire and pleasure gets to be, is thought of much as sort of internal, right? And to the individual. Um, but we need to think about that, that both definitely desire, but also pleasure is socially constructed, right? Um, and, and so how do we experience things? It's a reflection of what society tells us, uh, uh, even sort of looking at these alleged um, sexual paraphilias where people have like um, fetishes for certain things. Um, it's not like people, you know, I'm sure there are people who have fetishes for like things like rocks too, right? 
But there's a pattern to fetishizing, right? In the sense that there's a lot of people who fetishize high heels. A lot of people fetishize fishnet. A lot of people fetishize certain things. Clearly, uh, this isn't an, an internal biological thing. They're getting social cues that are telling them that high heels are, are something that could be fetishized. That, you know, fishnet stockings are something that could be fetishized. So when we apply that to race and we think about racial fetishization, it isn't these personal things. People are not looking at men of color and saying, okay, well, I, I see them a certain way. Well, they're seeing men of color a certain way because men of color presented a, a certain way. That that interpretation is socially open to them. I love what you're saying, too, because, I mean, I think it gets to, like, the intricacies of, like, sexual racism in general. Because I think people, I, and yeah, perhaps this is what we should talk about and clarify. But, um, yeah, thinking about it as, one, for so long I thought about it as solely rejection. But it's also about fetishization. Like, what group, you know, what bodies are... Um, imbued with this uh, desirability and why and who gets to make those choices, I think, has a lot to say about uh, sexual racism, which I think, again, speaks to, you know, sociological work in general, because we are very much interested in what power is lying in these dynamics and, um, you know, where power is residing and who, how that power is distributed and how it's determining what bodies have value or not or what people have value or not. And which desires are normalized and which desires are sort of pathologized, right? Absolutely. And we have words like rice queen. We right. Have like, you know, chocolate queen. Yes. Yeah. That's what those things tell us is that desire for men of color is a pathology that has to be explained. You know, you right. don't have, you know, you don't have these same type of labels for white men who like other white men, right? Mm. Boring. Uh, so, <laughs> so even this, you know, even this idea of sticky rice, right? I mean, for men of color, of course, if men of color who like white men, uh, you know, are given labels like potato queens and snow queens or whatever they whatever they call them, we sort of pathologize these sort of interracial dynamics of desire in some way. Um, and so, how do we then talk about this in a way that that would sort of forefront? this as being a larger social process rather than these very individual preferences that we think that they are right because that's sort of the defense is that always what's well, my personal preference right and, right. and then, so when you talk about something as being a personal preference well, what happens is that we we simply close the dialogue because how do you explain that right how do you sort of how do you debate that right how do you debate what someone says that's just what i like right yeah there's, there's no sort of movement in discussion if, if we allow that sort of explanation to, to be the overarching explanation for why these things happen. But this is a thing because at the end of the day, um, you know, Winter, you were, you were talking about the patterns and all of this and, it, you know, it's quite easy when, when people uh, start talking about their desires in these very uh, racially fetishizing ways, it is very easy to kind of trace out the the historic and the you know sociocultural patterns of where those ideas came from you know when when gay men talk about the fact that they love this idea of the the big black top black man who you know top is the person who who penetrates rather than is penetrated you know we can we can look at the the history of you know depending on obviously the the cultural context you were in but you can look at the history of how 
blackness has been thought about in relation to slavery, in relation to colonialism, in relation to specific kinds of colonialism, for example, in the UK versus in the US. And, you, you know, those ideas are coming from somewhere. Those ideas are a lot of times directly coming from, from you know, the, the same discourses that slavery was using to justify itself, from the same discourses that the British Empire was using to justify its intervention in, in so many places around the world. And so to then also in the same breath argue that these things are personal and psychological in a way that, that the individual can't think about it and can't rationalize it in a way, that becomes quite problematic. And that I think is where sociology becomes quite relevant because again, it's drawing on the narratives of power and it's drawing on the the histories of meaning. It's saying these racialized desires that we are now seeing in this and this space, they have an origin. And these these are the places where they come from. These are the impacts that they're still, you know, having on certain racialized groups nowadays. Yeah, no, I think that you're spot on here. So if we're saying that sexual racism has this long complicated history. I think that's absolutely true. And as you're pointing out, it has a uh, colonial history. It has this imperialistic history, I think, absolutely in what determines what's desirable or not. And I think you're also pointing out how much, you know, uh, media and these different things, you know, tell us what is desirable and how that's reinforced in so many ways in our everyday lives. And I think that that's in essence, like the fascinating question, right? for all of us is like far less of whether or not, um, you know, this says something evil about the person who has a racial preference and much more about, you know, what does this say about the society we live in? I always thought that like what makes discussions of sexual racism so fascinating is like, again, people still to this day will say, you know, they'll still imply that we're beyond uh, race or that there's only small groups of people who are racist or even you're having the narrative from the right now that it's the left that's racist for bringing up race you know so but every time you ask people you know when they say that we should judge people by people all of a sudden when it comes to dating this is the one space dating and hooking up where race is still absolutely justified and allowed all of a sudden this thing that shouldn't matter matters and people are kind of okay with it and i think that's what's powerful about the topic of sexual racism is it allows us to talk about um, or it reveals more clearly how race is so embedded in everyday aspects of our lives in the personal and in society at large. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? It's that there's so much sort of, sort of defense for, for actively engaging sexual racism, right? Uh, I've even sort of read things and heard things about people saying that um, suggesting that people should sleep with people that they aren't attracted to is sort of like, you know, uh, rape or whatever the case might be, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody is suggesting you sleep with people you're not attracted to. I mean, nobody who's doing this work is sort of saying, well, we should just have this, you know, open field where you just kind of have sex with everyone and anyone. Um, <laughs> the question becomes, if these are preferences, why do you have them, right? Why right. are you interrogating what this is about? Um, rather than simply sort of saying, this is just my personal preference. And part of that is because it's not, if it was really just a matter of what well, these white guys don't like me, I mean, who cares? No one cares, right? Mm -hmm. Well, some people do, right? Some people are really hurt by that. 
But for me personally, I don't care. Like, I don't care if these white guys don't like me. And, you know, so what, right? Mm-hmm. The bigger issue is that sexual racism maintains racial hierarchies in other mm-hmm. areas. Yeah, like, uh, it's not simply a matter of who you sleep with. But it's a matter of building these racial hierarchies and justify treating men of color in different ways outside of the sort of romantic in- interactions, right? Like excluding them from gay spaces, like not having them be within gay sort of um, leadership positions and whatnot. When the economy of, of desire be- comes into play, whether we want to accept that or not, right? So. To, to make the argument that one group is sort of sexually more desirable is to mark that group as being somehow better in some way. Mm-hmm. And that gets translated to all other arenas of life, right? Because we, there is such a thing that, that we, we know from studies that people who are considered attractive end up getting better jobs. They end up getting promoted more. They're thought of as being smarter. They're thought of as being mm-hmm. nicer. So we know all of this is true for individuals. So sexual racism is just a group level process whereby an entire group gets marked as being somehow better, somehow smarter, somehow more deserving, somehow more deserving of our sympathy and empathy as well. Yeah, I think, oh gosh, what you're saying, Dr. Hanna, is spot on. And you say it a lot in your work. And I think that's the like that's the valuable takeaway from this is that you know, it is very much about the social organizing that's happening here and the, the racial hierarchy that takes place. But also beyond just the erotic, it is about, you know, what bodies are valued mm-hmm. in, in essence, like, you know, where resources are going to go to, where these, uh, you know, when we're going to improve aspects of life, who do we want to ship things to or not? And I think you see it modeled in the erotic, but it's definitely a reflection of everyday life. I think just in, in a kind of anti-racist project, of making sure that white supremacy, you know, isn't necessarily a part of our lives anymore, making sure that white supremacy has its role in determining the lived experiences and the life outcomes of of people, making sure that that isn't the case anymore. I think we need to look at as well as, as to what sexual racism and what the sexualization of race does to our understandings of race more generally, right? Looking, for example, uh, in 2020, when there was the big resurgence of uh, Black Lives Matter, um, there were a lot of uh, protests in in different UK cities as there were kind of across the world. And you would see, you know, people, a lot of the times, uh, white women, kind of holding up posters that they'd drawn themselves saying black dick matters. Does the rest of black black men not matter, you know? Uh, Or, you know, when we say black dick, what do we mean by that, you know? Because we're not saying that innocently. There there are connotations to what it means when we say these words. Uh, And when you talk to kind of black queer men, a lot of the times they, they do retell their experiences of when people have questioned if their dick is big enough, if their dick is black enough, you know, if if they fit the idea that people have of black men and what that feels for them as people that, you know, are just horny and want to get it on, you know. At the end of the day, that, this is what it's about. It's people um, not being able to be sexual because they don't necessarily fit two ideas that other people force on them. And because those ideas are so tied to 
how people see them as sexual or not. Um, at the end of the day, it, I think it's also important to think of this as like an issue of care and, and kind of the just like ethics in terms of in the same way that everyone has the right to fair housing, the same way that everyone has the right to um, live their sexual orientation the way they want to, you know, people of color also should not have to deal with the, the level of racialization in order to live their sexuality. Yeah, it sounds like it, um, a lot of what you're saying is making me think of uh, Sonu Betty's work on sexual racism as a matter of uh, uh, intimacy as a matter of justice. It's laid out so well there, particularly the argument, again, thinking about how sexual racism has this deep, long history, thinking about, you know, segregation, right, and where we're placed and what groups are allowed access to good neighborhoods or not, and then how that is structuring and influencing who we interact with and who we desire, and how that then, what that means, and how that limits certain groups. And I think that article and folks in that vein make a very fascinating argument about, you know, intimacy is a matter of justice. And I do think about that sometimes. Like, uh, I, I was very conflicted. I don't know how you both felt. But when, you know, the Black Lives Matter resurgence was taking place or the uprisings were taking place. And, you know, and I think this is part of what turns people off sometimes to sexual racism talk is, you know, folks will be like, you know, aren't there more important issues? (laughs) So in essence, you're seeing these sorts of uprisings against police brutality that's like, and then here are some folks bringing it right back to, you know, sex and whose cheeks are clapping, you know, like whatever. And so it's like, yeah, there's this, it's funny because I don't think any of us would say again that like there aren't more pressing uh, uh, issues that matter, especially to the material reality of people's lives. And then there's this other side too, where uh, I still think about, you know, what does it mean when so many folks are denied not only erotic pleasure, but connection and intimacy. And, and, and I think that's a fascinating um, idea to explore because, yeah, it does make me think, you know, what some of the amazing avenues you can go down with sexual racism is this idea of like a more liberated sexuality in some ways or more like freed in some ways where you're like less concerned about um, these things that could feel very restrictive sometimes versus, you know, uh, pleasure that's all encompassing and, um, you know, I don't know, more accessible, I guess. I, I'm not sure. The words are kind of fleeting me here. But yeah, it does make me wonder or think about, you know, what does it mean to think about intimacy as a matter of justice while simultaneously being understanding that I do think there are far more pressing issues, uh, especially in the moment of uprising. And, you know, of course, (laughs) um, issues of police brutality, issues of sort of job discrimination, housing shortages, those are, are, are more pressing, right? And they are more important. But I think what we forget is that when we dismiss sexual racism, we're dismissing this idea that this is only about sexual behaviors and desirability and how we're seen. And it really isn't. It's, 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 sexual racism is yet another way that racial hierarchies get established and maintained, which then leads to the justification of all those other um, negative things. So, so when we think about, um, you know, so for example, Sexual racism is directly tied to how we think about bodies. What, what as Jesus was saying, right? What bodies have worth? What bodies are worth protecting? What bodies have value? And so 
when we sort of say, well, white bodies have value, but you know, dark bodies don't, then that sort of racist belief then justifies police brutality, right? Yes. It justifies homelessness. It justifies all of these things because one of the ways that sexual racism sort of maintains itself is act is not simply by marking white men as being more desirable, but but specifically marking men of color as being deviant, right? Oh. Uh, and so you see this in in gay publications where um, deviancy is linked to to men of color, right? All those sort of negative stereotypes. And again, I, I'm not certain how negative those stereotypes really were. Stereotypes are negative because of the way we interpret them. Um, and, and by that, I mean things like, uh, you know, this alleged promiscuity in gay men, right? Uh-huh. Uh, that stereotype is only negative if we believe there's a problem with promiscuity, right? Uh, but right. that's the way that the gay community has now framed it as, as sort of promiscuity being a problem. And who's promiscuous? Was well, men of color, right? Um, mm-hmm. as gender nonconformity as being problematic. And so who is, who is the problem? It's men of color, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you, and, and all of that play into sexual racism, is seeing them as sexual deviants, seeing them as being gender nonconformative, seeing them as being outside of normal, then allows all sorts of violence to be justifiable against groups of people that are marked as being outside of that normal. Right? because they're not deserving of protection. They're not deserving of dignity. They're not deserving of any of these things that we would extend to, to, to people, right? And I think sexual racism is one of the ways that, that this gets maintained, whether it be in the gay community or whether it be among straight people, right? Because there's lots of sexual racism happening in straight communities. Absolutely. Um, and so it's not simply a matter of, well, this is just a bunch of gay men of color, you know, complaining they can't get white men. It actually isn't, right? On a personal level, for some people, it might be. But for, for on sort of an academic and societal level, it really is about the way that the racial hierarchy gets played out and the implications that, that has on, on sort of all other arenas of life that we, we never think about. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Han, what you were think, uh, saying really made me think again, kind of, you know, again, how serious this issue can be, especially when we think about heterosexual communities, is thinking about how long the segregationist movement was about protecting white girls from black men because they're seeing it's a deviant and how much lynchings and things like that were taking place all over this idea about this hypersexualization of black yeah. people. So this intersection of race and sexuality, and particularly how sexual racism operates, like you're saying, actually has a deep, brutal history that's very significant and that absolutely has motivated straight folks to do some uh, outrageous stuff for a long time. And so, yeah, it's, I'm sure for some folks it can seem like a real petty issue. And of course, we can make arguments about a more pressing uh, material issues at the end of the day for sure. But I do think like you're saying, and I, I agree with this, this is, you know, it does, it plays a very powerful role in how we understand a uh, group dynamics and group relations and hierarchies and violence and uh, how sexuality can be such a motivating force in all of that. Oh yeah. And so I, I really like the way that you frame that in terms of this, this lynching of black men, right? This alleged, um, alleged, alleged crime of looking at white women, right? Mm-hmm. So all of those things, all of those very violent actions were justified through the lens of sexual racism by, by sort of portraying black men as being sexual deviants <clears throat> by default, simply looking at a white woman 
he becomes a target of, of, of horrendous sort of actions um, because we have this belief that is intimately sexual. And so we may not have used the language of sexual racism to explain a lot of those things previously, but those things all are the, the result of sexual racism, right? In marking people of color, whether they're queer or straight, as being sexual deviants. Therefore, all of their actions then get interpreted through that lens of sexual deviancy, right? In a country that, that um, you know, America is, 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 is relatively prudish to some extent, right? <laughs> yeah. So sexual deviancy becomes an easy way of, of criminalizing behavior that only because we, we, we frame Black men as being sexual deviants can we sort of continue this mythology of this big black rapist, right? Mm -hmm. Big black threat to, to uh, everyone. And that and those types of beliefs then end up justifying all kinds of, of behaviors, right? Um, we think about black women as being sort of more aggressive and loud and sexually promiscuous. Well, that justifies all sorts of treatment of black women at, in the workplace, in domestic life, in sort of in public spaces where they become threatening because they're not simply sort of a, a generalized threat, it's a very sexualized threat. And right. that has worked wonders um, for white supremacy, right? I mean, if white supremacy was gonna ever have this top 10 list of most effective strategies, um, sexualizing people through deviancy is like the best way of supporting this, this idea of pureness for whites, right? Yeah. Reading your work kind of I became interested in these topics, I think helped me also acknowledge that uh, sexual racism is is important to think about, not only, you know, as a, as a theoretical concept, but also to understand in the ways that it manifests itself in particular cultures and in ways that are deeply historically relevant to the, to the cultures that they're in. Again, because it is part and parcel of the structures of white supremacy and racialization, um, which are themselves culturally specific. Um, and so when we look, for example, at, Brit uh, for example, Black British history, um, we do, you know, we don't necessarily have um, segregation in the same way. We don't necessarily have slavery in the, in the British Isles in the same way. But we do have, you know, parallel examples of, you know, in the city that I'm in right now, Nottingham had race riots in the late 1950s, which were about a black man and a white woman who were, you know, together in a relationship, went to a pub and and that provoked riots in the city for several days. Um, if we think, for example, about the role of the empire abroad, of the British empire abroad, and for example, Edward Said's writing on Orientalism, it was very much around presenting, uh, you know, the Oriental in a very sexualized way, even if that doesn't necessarily make the front page of the arguments about Orientalism, that is still a very important part of, you know, what the British Empire was doing in certain parts of um, Africa and, and South Asia. Um, and even to this day, you know, it, it's manifested itself in different ways across countries but in the uk when we think about you know closeted men all of these narratives that, that the gay community has about 
closeted men and about men that aren't out, they uh, applied in very specific ways to uh, certain migrant communities in the UK. And so the way that South Asian migrant communities, so the way that gay men and, and kind of gay pop culture in the UK talks about South Asian migrant communities is very much around this idea of, you know, if, if there are gay men in South Asian communities, they will be closeted because of cultural reasons, you know, quote unquote, cultural reasons, never super specific on what that is, you know, intensely, those ways of thinking about race and sexuality that are embedded in the UK's history of colonialism and imperialism, and even into the kind of, you know, contemporary understanding of those migrant communities still being a part of British racial structure that is very much dictated by their colonial past. That's not necessarily just the case in the UK, even if I think, you know, Portugal's colonial history. Colonialism that was still uh, very much a part of, of our politics and culture until the, the, the kind of mid-1970s, Portuguese officials were allowed to marry someone in Portugal and they were allowed to keep a second family in the colonies even though the 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 dictatorship that the countries was ruled by until 1974 one of their main buzzwords was family but somehow family was a lot less important or at least a monogamous understanding of family was a lot less important when you were looking at the African continent and, and their families in the African continent moral of the story is i think for me making sure that work on sexual racism is thinking about like uh, around the world is, is international in its understanding of how does race and sexuality operate how do they operate in such a way that make themselves felt very differently across different cultures yeah absolutely being one of the people in the uk and one of the few people in the uk at the moment working on this i think is always a point that I try to drive home is uh, <laughs> let's make sure that we're not just thinking of the US context that has, you know, a very troubled and particular history of, of racism and white supremacy, but also let's think about countries where we don't necessarily have as present and as constant reminder of racism. It's always there, but about the role that it has on culture, I think. Yeah, that makes me think of uh, Denton Calendar and and their work in Australia, right? Where the whole um, just a preference study that they uh, performed, and you know, very much centering it in that particular history. Damien Riggs does similar work as well, and so that is kind of the good thing I think I'm starting to see with sexual racism studies is you know there is a lot more of a call, as you're saying, Thiago, about what we do in different spaces and how we consider other lo locations in those particular histories and how those histories are very important to how we analyze and make sense of these uh, sexual racisms. But also, yeah, definitely thinking globally as well as, uh, you know, um, having specific locations that we're interested in. So, yeah, I think your point is very well taken. Racialization isn't the same everywhere. You know, when, when you think about the Australian context as a settler, colonial state, you have to think about the the ongoing settlement of Aboriginal land. For example, the work um, uh, some people have been doing in uh, the north of Europe and in Central Europe, 
people like Andrew D. Shield kind of thinking about the racialization that happens through migration, thinking about the particular manifestations of sexual racism in you know migrant communities, but also just in recent migrants. Um, and you know what we were talking about earlier in terms of all of these more pressing issues in terms of police brutality and, and accessibility to housing and, and accessibility to, f to fair pay. We also have to think that for first generation migrants, I think maybe some of the parallels for those communities is about is about feeling like you can live a life in this in this new country that you're you're settled in when you're rejected on the on the basis of migration status and all of the bureaucracy and state violence and symbolic violence that comes from that when you're then also rejected from a you know sexual community and in inverted commas because of your your racial and kind of migratory status as well what does that do to someone what does it do to someone to have their you know state of, of or the sense of not belonging being in what does it mean for someone to be made to feel like they don't belong on grounds of migration but also on grounds of sexuality you know the the kind of deep psychological impact that that can have on on migrants i think is also a really important part of thinking about these connections between racialization colonialism and kind of sexuality yeah absolutely i mean it's it's interesting right because yes every place racializes differently but then i think particularly in terms of the way that a very eurocentric view of race is being pushed onto the rest of the world in some way particularly through settler colonialism, right? We justify settler colonialism using very sexualized narratives. Um, and so it, it, is, it is sort of, I think we, we miss, when we dismiss sexual racism as a field of study that is very niche and looking at certain populations, I think we miss that, that, that the way that all of these things are impacted by the way we sexualize people. And all the things that get justified through that sexualization of people, even though it doesn't seem that way, right? It doesn't seem like police brutality is, is sexualized. But yet, it's because we have this image of, of, of the way Black men particularly are portrayed, right? They're, they're not simply just threats. They're, they're very sexual threats. And that adds another level of, of alleged deviance to their actions, right? Regardless of, of whether whatever they, they're being accused of doing is sexual in nature or not. It's that underpinning that helped us get to this point of seeing black men as being threatening, right? Because it started with black men threatening to white women. In an era, ironically, where, um, you know, white men were routinely raping black women, um, somehow black men became the sexualized aggressors, right? Um, and so oftentimes sexual racism isn't even, well, most times, sexual racism isn't based on any sort of um, measurable facts. It's these sort of conceptual, uh, the illusion of violence, an illusion of threat, illusion of danger that allows us to see people as being deviant in some way. I think my, my frustration uh, with, with sociology and kind of the, the slow uptake of these issues as significant oh, issues. Yeah. If, even if you look at the, some of the, you know, quote unquote, some of the classic texts that we have to think about 
racism. You know, Patricia Hill Collins had, you know, hints and drops about the, the role of sexuality and of sexual violence in maintaining uh, cattle, cattle slavery. Um, oh, yeah. Fanon in Black Skin White Masks talks about the, the fear and the psychological impact of white men feeling intimidated by the, the, the sexuality of, of black men and kind of how that manifests in violence, like you were saying. And so these things have been out there. People have had the opportunity to take them up and do something with them. But somehow these are some of the topics that keep getting pushed back to the, the kind of the end of the pile. They've, they've been there, we know that they're significant, but they keep not being given the, the time and, you know, realistically the funding that they need to, to actually make something of them and, and make sure that we are not only researching, but also sharing the work that we do with the communities and making sure that the communities that we research can also think about these issues with us, not just when we get time to do our PhD and when we get time to do our research, we're in, in our offices thinking about this with ourselves, because it's also about institutional support. If institutions don't support this kind of work, then, you know, who is going to be able to, to do the research? Sociology needs to give us, give more money to the kind of research that is being done on sexuality and race again, because of how much, how the connection between sexuality and racism is felt. Uh, it, it's not niche. It's not, you know, some people complaining about it. It's a key part of of racial structure, like we've been saying. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.